For our sake he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. Crucified under Pontius Pilate. Who is this man, and what can we learn from him this Lent? Hi, I'm Chloe Linger, and this is The Catholic Podcast. I'm joined today by Joe Heschmeyer. He's the author over at Shameless Popery. He works for Holy Family School of Faith here in the Archdiocese of Kansas City in Kansas, and we're in the middle of our Lenten series. So thanks for coming on the show today, Joe. My pleasure. So we've been spending Lent looking at Lent through the eyes of different characters of the Passion. And last week, we really dug into John the Baptist. And when we were in that episode, we talked about how John the Baptist prefigures Christ, and we see this especially in John the Baptist's interaction with Herod, and that prefigures what Christ's interactions with Pilate will look like. So this week, we're going to be digging deeper into the role of Pilate and his role for Lent. So what are the takeaways? What do we want people who listen to take away from this episode? Three things. Mm -hmm. The first is that Pilate cracks under the pressure of the crowd. Even though he knows that Jesus is innocent, he condemns him to the cross. We all have more than likely been in Pilate's shoes, so we'll be looking at how we are called to take a courageous stand for the truth. The second point, uh, Pilate mistakenly believes that he has power over Christ, but that belief couldn't be further from the truth. So we'll take a look at Christ's reign, especially when seen in comparison to Pilate's reign, and see how it reveals what true power should look like. And finally, Pilate asks Jesus what truth is. With that question, he sort of introduces the concept of relativism. So today we live in a dictatorship of relativism, as Pope Benedict XVI put it. So we'll be discussing why we shouldn't be afraid of the truth and why relativism is so dangerous in today's culture. Let's begin. Part 1. Under Pressure You know, let's begin by setting the scene for Pontius Pilate. Okay. Jesus appears before Pilate, and we have an account of it in all four Gospels. Mm -hmm. But they tend to tell us little bits of the story. Right. And so we can't piece it together perfectly to say this is the exact chronology everything happened in, because different evangelists are highlighting different details that Mm -hmm. they find important. Mm -hmm. But here are some of the things that we know. Um, In Mark 15... Uh, 1 to 15. That's his account of it. It begins by saying, And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests with the elders and scribes and the whole council held a consultation, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him to Pilate. Now we'll get more as to why uh, they couldn't execute him themselves, Mm -hmm. but we see that Pilate didn't just go out and arrest Jesus on his own accord. He didn't seek this problem. He's he's not looking for it. Mm-hmm. And so the character of Pilate is someone who's evasive. He's not one of those who's scheming to kill Jesus. Mm-hmm. He's just trying to pass the buck. Yep. And so he ends up being a complicit figure in the death of Christ, just basically out of being weak-willed, mm-hmm. having no, no spine. Now, all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, have Pilate asking Jesus the question, are you the king of the Jews? Uh So you'll be able to find this in scripture in Matthew 27, verses 11 through 26. You already mentioned Mark 15, verses 1 through 15. Luke 23, verses 1 through 25. And then in John's gospel, chapter 18, verses 28 through 40. Exactly. So in all four of those places, 
we find Pilate asking Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Mm -hmm. Luke explains why he's asking that question. This is 23.2. He says, they, meaning the company of those who delivered Mm -hmm. Jesus over, uh, began to accuse him, saying, we found this man perverting our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Uh Uh-huh. So what's fascinating here is that these are pious Jews who are taking the messianic expectation of Israel and trying to turn it into a crime just to get rid of their enemy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's an incredible betrayal of their own religion. Uh, these are, you know, chief priests and elders. These are people who who know that Israel is awaiting a Messiah. Right. And they use Jesus' so. messianic claims as a proof that he's trying to become a new Caesar or a threat to Caesar. Right. Which is such an incredible misinterpretation mm-hmm. of what the Jews are looking for in a Messiah. Mm-hmm. Um, so, also, even the idea that he's trying to forbid them from paying tribute to Caesar. This is the same one who said, render unto Caesar right. what belongs to Caesar. The exact opposite of what Christ says. Mm-hmm. So there are some theories that this is related to things like calling Matthew the tax collector. Mm. Because this could be seen as opposing the tax authority that you're taking these tax collectors, uh, people like Zacchaeus mm-hmm. and Matthew, and making them disciples who abandon their, their role working for the Roman Empire. Yeah, That's one theory, but it seems more likely that they're just out and out. Lying. Yeah, they're out to get him. Mm-hmm. Well, in any case, Pilate, after interrogating Jesus, is unconvinced of Jesus's guilt. This is something we also see from all four Gospels. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, for example, in Luke, in verse 4, Pilate, after interrogating him and saying, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus says, You've said so. And Pilate goes back and says, I find no crime in this man. Mm-hmm. So he's just saying, basically, no, there's no reason for me to get involved. And you'll see, this is Pilate's whole MO. Yeah. He's just like, I shouldn't have to do anything. Why are you making me, mm-hmm. uh, you know, cooperate with this? This is what's sometimes called a cat's paw. It's someone you use kind of for your own end to do something that's, you know, illegal or hard to do or something else. You get somebody else to do it. Yeah, yeah. So that you can then reap the benefit. Mm-hmm. And so Pilate sees he's being used. And, and he's trying to resist at every turn, but not very well. Mm-hmm. He's, he's a man of weak will, as I said. So his next strategy uh, is to try a jurisdictional trick. So I used to be a lawyer, and so I really kind of appreciate this this part. He basically says, oh, this isn't appropriately before me. Mm -hmm. And and you find him looking for this. So again, in Luke's gospel, the people who turn Jesus over, they're urgent, saying he stirs up the people teaching throughout all Judea from Galilee even to this place. And as soon as Pilate hears the word Galilee, uh-huh. he's like, wait, 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 wait. That's is he a I'm Galilean? <laughs> right. And so as soon as he finds out Jesus is a Galilean, you can almost hear the sigh of relief. Yep. Because that's Herod's jurisdiction. Right. And so Pilate sends Jesus to Herod. Now, we talked about Herod last week mm-hmm. with John the Baptist. Mm-hmm. And you remember his disposition. Yep. Uh, he was happy to be able to talk to John the Baptist but ultimately, Herod also was a weak-willed man mm-hmm. who gets pushed around and ends up executing John the Baptist. Yep. We're going to see that again. He's excited. You know, he's heard about this celebrity, Jesus of Nazareth. Yeah. So now he's going to get a chance to interview him himself. Mm-hmm. And so it says in 23.8, When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he'd heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he wants some cool miracle. Yeah, yeah. Entertainment for the evening. But it says that he questioned him at some length, but Jesus made no answer. And so now Herod is furious. And so Herod and the, and the soldiers basically 
torture him. They treat him with contempt. Mm-hmm. And then they send him back to Pilate. Mm-hmm. So Herod is frustrated. Pilate's also frustrated because now it's back in his court. Yep. Literally. <laughs> and so he has to, you know, figure out what he's going to do. Mm-hmm. So there, you know, um, you also have at some point Pilate's wife stepping in. And she says, this is Matthew 27 and 19. That while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with this righteous man, for I've suffered much over him today in a dream. And so Pilate's basically confirmed in his desire not to get involved in this situation. Mm -hmm. The fact that his wife refers to Jesus as righteous is really important. Because Pilate seems to know that Jesus isn't just not guilty, but is actually a good man, a just man. Mm -hmm. So Pilate, like Herod, is actually really interested in Jesus and in, in who he is. And so you have this great what is truth dialogue yep. in John's gospel, John 18, where he's asking him, he's again trying to find out, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, my kingship's not of this world. Mm-hmm. And so he says, so you are a king. And Jesus answers, you say that I'm a king. For this I was born, and for this I've come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who's of the truth hears my voice. And Pilate's got this great relativistic response where he mm. says, what is truth? Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is a man who doesn't appear to have a principled bone in his body. Mm-hmm. It's a man who became the governor of Judea, the prefect, not because of any personal piety, not because of any great virtue, but because he was politically well-connected back in Rome. Mm-hmm. And so he's not a Jew. He doesn't really understand any of this stuff. He's an outside occupying officer who's just saying, what, what are we even talking about here? Like, this whole religious debate is just above his pay grade. Mm-hmm. He doesn't really care about it. And he's just got this kind of dismissive attitude yep. to the whole thing. So I think he's intrigued. Mm-hmm. He's also confused, probably a little overwhelmed. Yeah. And is looking for some easy way out. Well, he has one more trick up his sleeve. Mm-hmm. This is a famous Jesus or Barabbas kind of moment. Uh, so we could go with any of them, but I think Luke 23, since we've been looking at that, maybe. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you turn to verse 14, he says to the crowds, the chief priests, the rulers, and the people, You brought me this man as one who is perverting the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Behold, Nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore chastise him and release him. Okay, now there's an important point even here. Herod's already compromising with evil. He has seen that Jesus is an innocent man and is still going to torture him just for being part of a problem, yeah. basically. Yeah. Just to, you know, get the, you know, the chief priests and everyone off of his back, mm-hmm. just to sort of try to make everybody happy. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we have this idea that the virtuous way is to just meet everybody halfway in the middle. But halfway in the middle between right and wrong isn't a good place to be. (laughs) And so because it's Passover and there's a custom that you will release one prisoner on Passover, Pilate tries to make this a sort of political uh, gift. Mm -hmm. uh, His idea, seemingly, is if he can release Jesus as the Passover sort of um, gift to the occupied people, then he's taken this problem, this liability, that he's going to do something with Jesus and actually turn it into a strength. You see this really political impulse. You know, he can be like, oh, look, I gave you Jesus, who he knew the whole time was innocent. 
Yeah. So it gets him out of punishing an innocent man, and it looks like he's doing a favor to the Jews. <laughs> and so that's what he tries. But of course it, it backfires. Fails. The people demand Barabbas instead. Mm-hmm. And so now he ends up, and he chose someone who seems to have been the worst of the worst yeah, to make it an easy choice. Right. It's, it's like yeah. a false choice in his mind. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, do you want to go to Burger King or do you want to get kicked in the face? <laughs> and they chose kicked in the face. <laughs> like, well, he wasn't expecting that. <laughs> right. It was the, the, He was not prepared for what came next. So he ends up having to release this awful person. Right. Back into society. So then he has that on his, on his conscience too. Not only did I condemn an innocent man, but here guys, have a murderer. You know, enjoy him. <laughs> exactly. And given that the whole charge against Jesus was that he was stirring up uh, opposition to Caesar, mm. Barabbas actually was guilty of that. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's why he was in jail in the first place. And so, yeah, they get this awful guy mm-hmm. who's actually worse than what the chief priest accused Jesus falsely of being. Yep. And Pilate is sort of like, oh, like his political ploys all backfire. Yeah. It's worldly wisdom at oh, its best so. and at its worst all at once. Right. You see all these ploys and none of them work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So in some ways, we've encountered the story of Pilate and he's a classic politician. So he's personally opposed to the crucifixion of Christ. But he doesn't want to make a stand against it because that would mean going against popular opinion. So how are we really, are we really so different today? Like it's easy for us to look at Pilate's story and condemn Pilate for condemning Christ. But probably too often we found ourselves like standing in his shoes too. You know, I think it's true of politicians Mm -hmm. and I think it's true of all of us. Mm -hmm. You know, on the level of politicians, you look at some moral evil like abortion Mm -hmm. um, and you say, okay. You have all these Catholic politicians out there yeah. who say, and let's take them at their word. They say that they are personally opposed to abortion. Mm-hmm. If they're personally opposed to abortion, it's because they know this is the murder of an innocent person. Right. But they don't want to like stand up for that if it's going to like offend someone else. Mm-hmm. Or if someone else is going to feel like, hey, you're interfering with my right to murder a child. Yeah, yeah. Then they're like, well, I mean, I'm not going to be... Right, that won't affect how I vote. You know, that would be silly. Yeah. It's exactly Pilate's response. Mm -hmm. You know, yes, this is executing an innocent person, but if it's going to threaten my political career to stand up for that, I'll go ahead and cooperate with this murder of the innocent. Mm -hmm. And so I think in a real way, you can see Jesus standing in the place of the fetus, of the unjustly condemned to die, you know, the person on death row, whatever you want to say. Mm All of those unjust executions that we allow here and elsewhere because it's politically expedient, because we don't want to take a hard stand for life. Don't want to offend anyone, have anyone come back at us. Mm -hmm. We see that kind of conflict between Jesus and Pilate going on down the road. You know, Pilate isn't just a bloodthirsty barbarian. Mm -hmm. He's not an abortionist. Right. But for the abortionist to triumph, all that's necessary is for politicians to enable them because they're... They're more interested in appeasing them mm-hmm. or even meeting them halfway in the middle. Yeah, which like you said before, halfway between good and bad is still still not good. There's this great line from Fulton Sheen where he says, quote, The refusal to take sides on great moral issues is itself a decision. It is a silent acquiescence to evil. The tragedy of our time is that those who still believe in honesty lack fire and conviction. Well, those who believe in dishonesty are full of passionate conviction. He's actually, I think, referencing uh, a poem mm. called The Second Coming, in which it says that the best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. And it's a great description. The poem is originally written right after. Uh, it's W.B. Yeats. Okay. And it's right after World War One, 
And he's seen kind of a, a Europe in which the principled people have no idea what to do. Mm-hmm. And the rise of people like the Nazis. I mean, this is, he's writing before the Nazis, but you see the right. rise of these totalitarian forces who have yeah. a very clear idea exactly what they want what to do. Exactly what they want. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if it isn't applicable in our own time. Again, both at like a political level, but also even at a personal right. level, mm-hmm. we see just culturally the forces of evil often have a much clearer sense of here's what we want, here's yeah. how we're going to get it than we Catholics or we people who are committed to the truth mm-hmm. often do. So yeah, that's that's exactly the place we find. So that's on the political level. Mm-hmm. But it'd be easy to just point our fingers. You're right. There's a problem the, over there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. At the politicians and say they're the ones with the problem. Mm-hmm. But I've found repeatedly that we Catholics, whatever our profession, mm-hmm. unless you're working directly for the church where this doesn't really come up, <laughs> you may not have political pressure but you'll have the pressure to stay employed yeah to cooperate with evil i mean how many times have you heard a catholic working at say a pharmacy saying should i be even distributing yeah condoms could like not even a pharmacy take like a cvs yeah like a convenience store Mm -hmm. so many of us at every point in our life we're faced with these small and large opportunities to either take a principled stand or to cooperate with evil but our employer, our coworkers, and society is saying, no, 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 your job is to cooperate with evil. Right. Right. And how easy it is to, to make the same mistake that Pilate does and placate the crowd. Yeah, we look back on Pilate. I think there are basically two camps of people. Uh. I mentioned last week that I had a group of third graders who mm-hmm. were stunned that we criticized and condemned Pilate for his actions. But they said, well, they told him he had to. Uh-huh. <laughs> and it was that kind of mentality where someone in authority said you had to do this thing your job isn't to question it Mm -hmm. that's understandable for third graders i think a lot of us have it as adults Mm -hmm. i think the other view is to just view Pilate as this barbarian who's you know how how could he possibly do that but it would have seemed unthinkable for him to do otherwise in some way because he was in a corrupt culture and under the sway of that culture rather than under the sway of truth yep and so I think we need to look at our own lives and say, where is that true of us? Where are the places where our participation in a corrupt culture, whether it's a national culture Mm -hmm. or a business culture or Mm -hmm. whatever it may be, Mm -hmm. where has that caused us to compromise our fidelity to the truth? This is especially true for Catholics. And this is the the desire for truth is one reason that we see Catholicism is true. And to drive this point home, there's another great quote from Fulton Sheen where he says, quote, if I were not a Catholic... And we're looking for the true church in a world today. I would look for the one church which did not get along with the world. In other words, I would look for the church which the world hated. Look for the church which the world rejects because it claims it is infallible. As Pilate rejected Christ because he called himself the truth. Look for the church which is rejected by the world as our Lord was rejected by men. Part 2. The Power and the Glory Pilate mistakes himself as powerful thanks to what he's done, instead of recognizing that he possesses power because God has given it to him. What does Pilate's mistake teach us about Christ's power, even in a situation where Christ looks helpless, and what the kingdom of God is? Yeah, the kind of revelation we get Mm -hmm. from Jesus' encounter with Pilate is that we tend not to understand things like power and authority. Mm -hmm. So there are two apparently contradictory parts of Scripture. Jesus says, as we mentioned before, render unto Caesar what belongs to Caesar, mm-hmm. render under God what belongs to God. Mm-hmm. But he also says, no man can serve two masters. Right. 
So how isn't that serving two masters? And the answer comes to Pilate, where he says that he wouldn't have the power unless it came to him from on high. Because Pilate's trying to lord his authority over Christ, saying, do you not know that I have the power to execute you or to let you go? And Jesus is saying, you only have authority because you got it from on high. Well, here's why that matters. Because if I delegate, let's say I delegate an attorney, mm-hmm. and I say, I want you to settle my case between ten and $30,000. Okay. And the attorney goes in and offers like 5000 or offers 50000 Like, no. That was You're, not the instructions. <laughs> right. The authority that he has comes from me mm-hmm. and therefore is a check where he doesn't just have unlimited power and authority. Right. This is true of all lawmakers as well. Mm-hmm. The lawmaker doesn't get their authority ultimately from the people, but from God. And this is a radical idea to us as Americans. Yeah, yeah. But if you stop and think about it, it has to be true. Mm-hmm. Because otherwise it's just a lynch mob. Right. Go to some of these societies in which, you know, take the U.S. early to mid-20th century, Mm -hmm. and you might have a community in which a majority of people are in favor of lynching someone. Yeah, yeah. Good point. It isn't okay. It isn't legal just because 51% of people want it. Mm -hmm. There has to be a higher authority to which they're accountable that isn't just the voice of the people, it's the voice of God. Right. So God himself is the check on that authority. Martin Luther King talks about this, actually, in his letter from the Birmingham jail. He quotes Augustine and Aquinas on this point. But it's ultimately coming from Christ himself. This notion that all authority comes from God or else is a rival to God. Mm-hmm. So if you're a legitimate civil authority, it doesn't mean you have to be a theocracy. He can work through democracy, he can work through monarchy, he can work right. through whatever. But your authority is ultimately coming from God, and therefore you can't do something contrary to the law of God. You don't have the authority... To you do something that's immoral and unjust any more than if you gave your attorney the authority to settle between ten and thirty thousand, he wouldn't have the authority to settle for fifty or for five. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He wouldn't be acting as a true uh, representative of you, and so he'd be acting outside of his authority, and so he couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. So too, Augustine says, and Aquinas says, and Martin Luther King says, an unjust law is no law at all. Right. That's not just rhetoric. Mm-hmm. Literally, if what a law is is a human participation in God-given authority mm-hmm. to govern, then if you try to pass a law that violates divine law, you're yeah. outside your authority. The law is not binding. Mm-hmm. This is the whole basis of Christian disobedience in like the civil context. Mm-hmm. This is why the civil rights movement existed. And Martin Luther King was very clear on that point. Because mm-hmm. he said, you know, people were asking, how can we demand some laws be enforced while we violate other laws? Uh-huh. And he says, no, there actually is a principled distinction. Yep. And he lays it all out. Quite impressively, honestly, he's in jail and still has this incredible recall of Augustine and Aquinas and shows that he is a natural law theorist, mm-hmm. quite literally, mm-hmm. and is tapping into that. Now we've sort of eliminated all of the Christian aspects of what King was doing. Yeah. And so it just makes him look like a political opportunist Mm -hmm. who just is saying might makes right. But that's the opposite of what he stood for. Right. Yeah, I think we see this in in Catholics interacting with even like the politics of today. Like legality doesn't equal morality. So when you look at uh, big issues like abortion or marriage and what that means in today's world, like on the legal books versus what divine law says, I think that gives you a really good measuring stick to see like... What am I, as a Catholic, what am I obliged to obey? What am I obliged to participate in when it comes to politics? This is another great example of that personally opposed position we were talking about Mm -hmm. before. I'm glad Mm -hmm. you mentioned marriage. Because you'll find Catholics who say, well, as a Catholic, I think marriage is between a man and a woman. Right. But legally, I support changing the definition to kind of whatever. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, no. Legally, you can't say human law is going to trump God's law. Mm-hmm. Sorry, God. Yeah. Yeah. Should have voted in the last election. <laughs> so, looking at Pilate's reign, looking at the reign that Christ brings with the kingdom of heaven, how does Christ, especially during his passion, show what true leadership, true kingship should look like? It's a humble leadership. So, remember at the Last Supper? He tells the apostles who are arguing over who the greatest is that he should look like being a servant. So Christ doesn't just exercise his muscle. He doesn't just say, I'm more powerful than you. I'm going to crush you or whatever. Mm -hmm. That's not the way he leads. And a lot of times, those of us in positions of responsibility, even something as simple as in the family. Right. Maybe authentic leadership and headship looks like letting yourself be stepped on a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I think this is beautifully seen when Christ is interacting with Pilate or any authority really throughout his passion where he's silent. Like where a lot of times he could be like, don't you get it? Like I've spent the past three years kind of like hammering this point in, like, where were you? But instead it's like a quiet humility. It's true. And it also is a chance for other people to sort of work through things. Mm -hmm. You know, if Christ just said, no, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. (laughs) Here's the right answer. Right. He doesn't spoon feed us in that way. He wants us to authentically come to knowledge of the truth and to true virtue. Mm-hmm. And it's frustrating. I mean, how often do we wish yeah. he would just be like, just give us the answer. Like, <laughs> can't you just do this for me? Please write this in the sky. What should I do? Yeah. Yeah. Or like, give me the strength to do it. Like, you mm-hmm. want me to do a thing. Why did you make me weak? Like, why? <laughs> but it's like such a beautiful respect of our free will. Like, because Christ loves Pilate, he doesn't just give it to him. He wants them to come to it. So we were talking before the episode about the kind of two contrary traditions about Mm -hmm. the end of Pilate. Mm -hmm. So Eusebius records that Pilate afterwards uh, kills himself. And there's another pious tradition that also is pretty old that says Pilate actually ends up converting. We don't know which of those two things happened. Mm -hmm. Um, It's interesting. Eusebius' account is that he killed himself on order from Caesar. That his fidelity to Caesar at the expense of God, is so profound mm-hmm. that he ends up killing himself because he's told to by the state. Oh, my gosh. It shows the sort of self-destructive. Yeah, just crumbling. Yeah. Uh, it's the original sense of the word chauvinist. I don't know if you know this, but... No! Chauvin was a uh, passionate defender of Napoleon Bonaparte, and so he was just, like, so unreasonable uh-huh. in his kind of uh, sycophantic fidelity mm-hmm. to Napoleon that he was a, the first chauvinist. And so a chauvinist is someone who's just like over the top partisan originally is what it means. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so Pilate is that. And it ends up being his, his downfall and his kind of slippery political um, downfall too. Another thing that is really interesting in this. I mean, remember, Pilate ends up executing a man that he knows is innocent because he wants to hold on to his own political authority, mm-hmm. and because he wants to control Roman authority in the province of Judea because they're an occupying force that doesn't really have the hearts and minds of the people. Right. Well, all of this turns out disastrously. Mm-hmm. Pilate himself, within three years, is called back to Rome and deposed. Mm-hmm. So he lasts until 36. And then immediately we just see Rome's control over Judea starting to get worse and worse. Like, yep. the, the grip slackens. And there's a really good... Um, Kind of subtle, concrete case of this. So one of the reasons that Pilate is forced to be involved in this is that they tell him, this is John 18, 31, Mm -hmm. that they don't have the ability, the Sanhedrin doesn't have the ability to execute Jesus themselves. It has to be done by the Romans. Mm -hmm. 
Well, a few years later, in the Acts of the Apostles, this is the end of Acts 7, St. Stephen um, offends the Sanhedrin, and they just go out and stone him. Yeah. Like, they no longer worry about Roman authority. And you can see it in this kind of concrete way, Mm -hmm. that this is an open act of defiance of Roman law. Yep. And they're no longer worried because Pilate's successors are all like these weak figures. Right. And Pilate really, I think, sets the course for that. Yeah. Once he buckles and to try to preserve Roman authority just does whatever the crowd wants, mm-hmm. he undermines the authority he's trying to protect. And so it, it's fascinating that here he, he's willing to sacrifice truth, willing to risk his own soul mm-hmm. for fleeting political pleasure, fle- like fleeting gain. Yep. And it lasts three years and the, the whole thing falls apart. The wheels come off. Yeah. Yeah. What an awful return on investment for this. Yeah. Just giving up truth and in turn, like it wasn't, oh, you know, and your reign will last forever. It was like three years later, you're out of a job and people are being stoned in the streets. Exactly. You know, Christ says it, it profits a man nothing mm-hmm. to gain the whole world at the cost of his soul. Yeah. But what's fascinating about it is that frequently when you do try to gain the whole world at the cost of your soul, you lose both the world and your soul. <laughs> right. Right. It's a lose-lose situation. Yep. Part three. What is truth? So Pilate asks Christ, what is truth? And he introduces this philosophy of relativism. So what is relativism and what role is it playing in the world today? And why is it a dangerous role? So relativism is a denial of moral absolutes or denial of all absolutes. Mm -hmm. And it's most extreme form. Like total relativism just says there are no absolute truth claims. The irony there is that is an absolute truth claim. That's a truth claim, claim. yeah. (laughs) Like, nothing is absolutely true except what I just said. And this (laughs) statement clarifying that exception. And and so it just immediately Mm self-destructs. Moral relativism is more that, well, what's good for you is good for you. What's good for me is good for me. Mm -hmm. And here it ends up making the same error, but in a more subtle way. So it'll say it's morally good to respect everybody else's moral autonomy and not to make a decision for them. But that's not respecting my moral autonomy to be a moral absolutist. Right. Because you're saying you morally, absolutely, must not be a moral absolutist. <laughs> it's like circular argument. But like it, you said, like self-implodes. Like it does. It self-implodes. Mm-hmm. It, it really does contradict itself. But that what's good for you is good for you. You know, me personally, yeah. I don't believe in this. But if you want to believe in that, that's good for you. We all have different ways of getting to the same end. Mm-hmm. That is so common today. Yes. And so... Uh, so I work with uh, Dr. Troy Hink, mm-hmm. and he does a really good chart where he'll draw between like knowledge and objective things mm-hmm. and non-knowledge and subjective things. Okay. So I like the Royals. I like ice cream. If you don't, we maybe have a difference of opinion, mm-hmm. but it's not on the level of truth. Right. You might like some inferior baseball player. <laughs> or for some reason not like ice cream. Exactly. But that isn't the kind of thing that... If I say two and two is four, and you say two and two is five, yeah. we have an actual disagreement about facts, about knowledge, and right. one of us is wrong. Right. If it's like, I like the Royals and you like the Mets or something. <laughs> Sorry, Mets fans. <laughs> we still like you. Kind of. <laughs> At least it's not the Yankees. Uh, those situations, like we can just agree to disagree in a certain way. Right. Because there's nothing really on the line about truth. Mm-hmm. And so the mistake a lot of the culture makes is they put religion and they put morality on the side of just preference, opinion, Mm -hmm. subjective, personal feelings, etc. And we don't have to agree on those things. Mm -hmm. But if it's something like a scientific claim, if it's something like objective truth, if it's something like that, well, then we do realize like, okay, those things we really, A, should agree on, 
and B, should teach to other people. Right. Because there's real truth and it's worth knowing what the real truth is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Relativism is basically just putting all of the important things about life, who is God, what's life all about, what's right, what's wrong, putting it in the category of subjective personal things. Yeah. Now that is itself an objective sounding claim. It's just a false one. Mm-hmm. I think, too, like, in the relativism kind of discussion that goes on today, it can be a false notion to think, like, well, if I just let that person think whatever they want to think, even if it's about something, you know, that is objectively true, then I'm just, I'm loving them, I'm not offending them, I'm I'm taking, in some ways, like, the easy road, because I just, I don't want to get in an argument today, and I'm just going to let it slide. But, like, in all reality, like, the sad fact is that, like, that's not loving them. Like, letting them continue to believe, you know, their, quote-unquote, their truth isn't helping them reach, you know, sanctity at all. Right. I mean, if you really authentically care about the spiritual well-being of another person Mm -hmm. and you see them doing something that would harm themselves, you really should, when appropriate, call it out. Yeah. Now, I mean, we want to caveat this in one way. Mm -hmm. You don't have to literally approach everyone who's wrong about everything always (laughs) and step in and say, hey, you're not right. (laughs) I mean, the internet is full of people who are wrong. That's almost the definition of it. (laughs) And so... You, you do have to be prudent about it. You yes. have to say, when are the times and situations in which I'm being called upon? Mm-hmm. And not to do it in a boorish and obnoxious way. There's a, a way, not just a time and place, but also a manner yes. of presenting the truth. We're told in scripture to present the truth in love. Mm-hmm. You can be obnoxious about it. It isn't just inherently, if you present the truth, you're therefore loving them. Uh-huh. You can present the truth in an awful yes. and uncharitable way. Mm-hmm. So it's not enough to present the truth, but we are called to present the truth. So we often make the mistake in this culture of thinking of agreeability or niceness as being a virtue. And it's not. Right. Kindness is. Mm -hmm. But the kind thing and the loving thing might be to correct somebody if the situation calls for it. Mm -hmm. In the same way that if you worried about your loved one's physical health and you saw them smoking and eating just a terrible diet, Uh it wouldn't be like the nice thing or the kind thing or the loving thing to do to just stay silent. You might have to say, hey... Did you know that what you're doing is actually really hurting yourself? Yep. And if we care about their soul half as much as we care about their body. Right. It should be an easy question. A theologian who's written beautifully on relativism and what it is in society is Pope Benedict XVI. And in his interview with Peter Sewald in the book, The Light of the World, he says, quote, intolerance and cruelty have occurred in the name of truth. To that extent, people are afraid when someone says, this is the truth, or even I have the truth. We never have it. At best, it has us, unquote. So why should we not be afraid of the truth? And how can we grow in our knowledge of truth, especially as lay Catholics? Yeah, I love that quote. Mm -hmm. I think it really does show why a lot of people are drawn to relativism. Because when they hear about moral absolutes, they imagine people who've deluded themselves into thinking that they have the whole truth Mm -hmm. and really lack an attitude of humility. And so they end up being, you know, violent persecutors in the name of their religion or they end up with their ideology or whatever it is. And that's the thing they they are, you know, reasonably kind of concerned about. Mm -hmm. But all of us are made to know and love the truth. Right. And so the idea that there is authentic truth is something that really does correspond to the deepest desire of the human heart. Mm -hmm. If you lived in a world of lies, that would be so deeply unsatisfying Mm -hmm. if you couldn't find truth. You wouldn't be able to be happy. And the whole notion, take something as simple as speech. The whole idea of the concept of speech, which is just hardwired into us, is the communication and conveyance of truth. This is why lies are so abysmal, because they really undermine the purpose of communication. Mm -hmm. In communicating, 
I come to know what you know, you come to know what I know, and we can know more together. We can come to truth together. Right. And there's a sort of accompanying, a walking with. Mm-hmm. And communication is all about that. Mm-hmm. Something we should delight in. You know, this is why we enjoy science as a culture. It's funny, we live in a culture that preaches moral relativism, but is made an idol of science because science is the one area in which most people still say, yeah, you know, there is a right answer in this. Yeah. And we're so happy to hear that there might <laughs> actually be a right answer, mm-hmm. that we just build an idol out of it. Yep. Now, there is a truth we ought to be worshiping, the truth of God himself. Yeah, you'll see this in, like, I mean, browse Facebook articles, like, for two minutes on your feed. You know, science has proven, fill in the blank. You know, thousands of likes. And so, yeah, for a culture that hates truth, we sure we sure do like scientific facts. We've reduced truth to scientific facts. Mm-hmm. We think that the only kind of truth claim that's really objective is scientific facts. But to even say the only source of truth is science is a non-scientific claim. So yeah. once again, yeah. you have this kind of catch-22. Yep, yep. That if you make the claim that all non-science claims are false or subjective, mm-hmm. that's a non-science claim. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yep. So Pilate has a role as a politician, and he brings up a question of whether politics can accept the truth. So Pope Benedict also wrote this in his masterpiece, Jesus of Nazareth, and he says, quote, Can politics accept truth? Or must truth as something unattainable be relegated to the subjective sphere, its place taken by an attempt to build peace and justice using whatever instruments are available to power, unquote. So what is the role of objective truth in the world of politics today? So if you want authentic peace, Mm -hmm. it needs to be grounded in the truth. There's a way, there's a kind of silent tyranny. Mm -hmm. Here's what I mean by that. You can find a situation in which someone unjust has quashed any violence because of their own reign of terror. Mm-hmm. You look at Tito in Yugoslavia. Yes. You look at various dictators throughout history, even very recent history. Mm-hmm. They might have a, a non-violent country because people are afraid to go out in the streets. Right. So you can have that kind of false peace. Mm-hmm. But it is a false peace. True peace involves a sort of happy, harmonious fidelity to the truth. Mm-hmm. And so you can't build true peace on a lie. So a lot of what we've done is sort of despaired. We've sort of said, we can't know the truth, mm-hmm. but we know what we happen to like. Because if yep. it's like this, this is one of the real dangers of relativism. If truth is subjective, if truth is on the same level as my personal preferences, mm-hmm. what if I prefer something other than the truth? Right. Something other than what I know to be true. Mm-hmm. Why are you telling me that I can't take this one subjective preference over this other subjective preference. Mm-hmm. They're both subjective, mm-hmm. according to relativism. Right. So you don't need to have any real fidelity to the truth. You just have your truth, my truth. But you yep. can choose what that is. Yeah. That, it's not just, this is the truth as best I understand it. Uh-huh. But this is what I want to be the case. Yep. And so you end up making an idol of power mm-hmm. and making truth sort of serve that. Mm-hmm. Um, Friedrich Nietzsche is the person this is most associated with as a philosophy. Yep. It's this notion of just kind of this might makes right. Mm-hmm. And that's the, the kind of notion that I think Pilate falls into, that Herod falls into. Yep. But of course it doesn't work. So true politics. I mean, we've, I think we've become jaded because we've seen so many corruptions of what politics often looks like. But politics should be good. It should serve the polis, the people. Mm -hmm. And so ultimately, that's in service of the true, the good, the beautiful. Yeah, I think 
the, the true, the good, and the beautiful is like something that's in the heart of every human too. Like we've talked about, like this is a universal longing for for God, and we come to interact with Him true through the true, the good, and the beautiful. And one of those things can be politics. Yeah, so I think a good political system actually draws us closer to God. Mm-hmm. We have a very uh, functional and, like I said, very jaded kind of view of politics mm-hmm. that the best it can do is sort of preserve the peace. But in fact, just laws change our hearts and minds. I mean, we, we see this, obviously, with unjust laws. Right. If you've got something like Jim Crow segregation laws on the books, that changes how you view your neighbor and interact with him. But the same is true, maybe more subtly, any other way. that The law really has uh, what's called a pedagogical function. It really does teach us. And we learn from the laws of a place. If the laws of the place say everyone's equal, or the laws of the place say some people are better than other people... Mm-hmm. And they might say it explicitly, or they might say it implicitly. Right. You take something away from that. Now, you don't have to believe what the law says, mm-hmm. but the law really does have a helping or hurting role in guiding you towards truth, goodness, and beauty. So in today's episode, we really looked at three aspects of Pilate's character and the role that he plays in The Passion of Christ. You know, first of all, we looked at how Pilate is a stand-in for so many of us, Mm -hmm. whether it's the personally opposed to abortion politician who still cracks under pressure and supports it, or whether it's any of us who personally, professionally, socially do things we know are wrong. He represents that kind of weak-willed person who knows better than they behave. Mm -hmm. Then we looked at how Pilate stands in front of Jesus and tells him, you know, you know, Lord, I have the power to condemn you to death. And when the reality is, is that Christ has the power and he gives all of us power um, that we have in in our roles in in our life and how Christ gives us the perfect example of what leadership looks like. He also shows, and this I think would be the good third point, Mm -hmm. he shows the importance of truth. He's taking a stand for truth in the face of someone who cares only about power. And it shows the primacy of truth over power, which is something that I think is sorely needed today. Mm So next week is Holy Week, and we'll be having two episodes released for for that week. Chloe and I are actually going to sort of tag team. (laughs) One of those episodes, I'll be interviewing Dr. Troy Hinkle. We're going to look at the role of John the Beloved Mm -hmm. in Lent. And then I'll be interviewing Sarah Burns, and we'll be talking about the Holy Women of Holy Week and how the church sees women. Great. So let's close with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.